morning. Some of you are still sleeping. I've been gone for two weeks, and that's the best good morning I can get. Good morning. Thanks. At least there's a couple of people that are glad I'm back. Hey, uh, I am glad to be back. As many of you know, maybe some, not all, um, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to uh, South Korea uh, and then on to China. We have a son who's in the military and serves in army in uh, Korea, and um, it was good visiting with him. We got to meet his girlfriend, and she's very sweet. Um, and then after that, we traveled around Korea with him for a while. I guess Korea is the size of Illinois with 50 million people living in it. So it was quite an experience. <laughs> and then we, we had the awesome opportunity and the blessing. Uh, Riley was supposed to be able to come with us, and things worked out where he didn't get to come, but we ended up going to China, to Beijing, a city of 21 million people in one city. And... Uh, Got to go to the Great Wall of China and um, see the Forbidden City and some, some other really cool uh, places and things there. And um, uh, I, I, I will summarize it with this, the whole trip. Um, it was a blessing, but I'm grateful to be home and I'm grateful to live in the United States of America. And I never want to eat any rotted sour food again. <laughs> On purpose. <laughs> no more kimchi. <laughs> <clears throat> hey, uh, there's a few announcements, um, uh, and just real quick, it's so great to be back and just worshiping with you guys and fellowshipping with you guys. We did get the opportunity to go to a church in Korea one time. It was a really, really cool thing. My wife and I had uh, planned to take our son and his girlfriend to church. We just didn't know where we were going to go, and um, that Saturday, we walked, Scott and Ramon will like this. We walked down from our hotel early in the morning because Riley was still sleeping. We were still doing the jet lag thing, and we were waking up early. And there's a Starbucks. Amen. <laughs> and, and, and God can even use things like Starbucks, Scott. <laughs> but we go into Starbucks, and there's a, a gentleman there with a lady. He's packing Bible. And I'm thinking, wow, that's cool. And so I get, we get our coffee, and I, we sit down, and I, I go up to him, and I said, so... I notice you're carrying what looks to be a Bible. Are you a believer? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he is there serving in the military. And the lady that was with him was an officer, and she had just come into the country. Well, they, had, they invited us to go to a church that they go to. It was a Korean Church of Christ. And, um, man, talk about some people who love the Lord. It was really cool. And the whole service was in Korean. Uh, they had a person translating there for us. And... Um, there, it was a small church. It was, it was actually quite an experience because it's hot in Korea, and it's like 100% humidity, and, and I'm a little, a little rotund, and, and I don't do so well in the humidity, and I'm already sweating everywhere we go, and we go to this church from a farm. It's literally like up 15, 16 flights of stairs in this narrow hallway, and so I get up to the top of it, and all of these Korean people who are so excited that we're there. There's like six or seven Americans there, and, and the, the pastor even makes a comment how he's so happy to have us, and that this week he's, we're an international church is what he said. But it's, 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 I get to the top, and I'm drenched. I mean, it was embarrassing. I was soaked, and my water, sweat was dripping off of me. 
And um, I'm already the sweaty guy. If you go to the gym, you know, there's always that one guy who sweats profusely at the gym. That's me, okay? I'm the sweaty guy. But we go, we go up and we have church with him. And it was really cool just to see other believers loving the Lord and, and worshiping. And even when we went to China, um, we didn't, there was, uh, of course, there's, it's a closed country. Religion isn't uh, uh, able to, you're not able to worship uh, openly. Although there, there was a Catholic church there that was open and we got to tour. It was really interesting. Um, <laughs> Keith Nordell. <laughs> I don't know what that was all about. But we did meet some believers while we were there and um, had some conversations with some Chinese people who love the Lord, and, and, and it's cool to see. Um, but there's nothing better than just being back with, with your own church family and being back here with you guys and worshiping you. There's a familiarity with it. There's a comfortableness with it, and um, I love you guys, and we missed you. So um, enough of that. In your announcements, um, coming up, Women's Bible Study. There's a lot of you ladies signed up. Did you see that, Vicki? The list is great. Um, there's room for more. It's a Thursday study here at 1230, child care provided, and then a Thursday evening study at uh, Shonda Welch's house. Um, at, what time is that at? At 6, oh, 630. It's right there. Yeah, 630. Um, and uh, so, ladies, you don't want to miss out on that. It's going to be a great time of uh, accountability and fellowship and study of God's word going through First and Second Thessalonians. So starting September 28th and um, ongoing. And please, this is not just for our uh, our, our congregation, if you will. It's, if you have a friend, a family member, a co-worker that wants to come, um, invite them. Please do. And uh, our men's retreat is coming up. Uh, Curtis had sent out some um, emails or some texts earlier today. Um, if you got that text, if you could just kind of square up so we could go ahead and make the payment if you're signed up to go. And we do have a few spots still available. And if it's, I know it was a cutoff, but if you can get if you can get signed up and get your money to us within a reasonable amount of time, speak to Curtis. He'll tell you all the details on that. But there's a few other spots available, it looks like, that we have. And so please do that. And one last thing. Um, we have a ministry called it's On High. Um, and it has to do with, I always hate saying that, it, with, the, with the country. This, like, living in Colorado, On High can mean a lot of different things. It's, but it, it's a ministry where they go and do um, outdoor things together and enjoy the creation that God's given us. And they're going to go climb a 14er uh, Mount Handles in the San Juan. And there's a short meeting. Some of you have talked to Martin about that. But if you're interested in getting more details about that or signed up to go, um, just stay in the sanctuary after church. And Martin's going to go over a few details regarding that. All right, guys, we're going to start a new book of the Bible, and thank you to uh, Curtis and Martin and Justin, who did a wonderful, awesome job of teaching while I was gone. Um, I'm sure you guys were blessed, um, and uh, good job, guys. Uh, thank you for that. But um, we're going to be starting a new study. Um, Martin and Curtis uh, did a topical study, um, but here, if you're new here or visiting, and, and the rest of you know this, but we teach expository here, meaning we go... On a Sunday morning, typically we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. And we just finished um, the book of Genesis uh, right before I left, Genesis chapter 50. And there was some, um, uh, still some uh, uncertainty in my mind and exactly where we would go next. I was uh, thinking that we would turn to the New Testament and go through one of the Gospels. Um, but God made it really clear on, the, on, the, on my vacation, on my time away, and I got an opportunity to study and, and prepare. Um, but we're going to go through the book of Exodus. 
So this morning, if you if you're, have a Bible or if you brought one, you can turn. If not, you can get one out of the chair in front of you. But turn and open your Bible to the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. And while you're turning there, I want to give a plug for Wednesdays. And on Wednesdays, we're doing some topical teachings. <clears throat> and in the book of Genesis in chapter 26, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 26, while you're turning to the book of Exodus, it says this. And it's, it's speaking about God creating man. And he said, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And um, that is going to be the topic that we're addressing this Wednesday. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a discussion type uh, atmosphere where we circle up and, and I lead you through uh, a study. But if you have questions or, or applications to your own life that you can share, it's an opportunity to chime in and talk and have a group discussion surrounding the topic that we're going to be handling. And this week, we're going to be talking about God making man in his image according to his likeness. And, and exactly what does that mean? What does that mean? And I, it's so important for us to understand what that means. There's so much weight involved in that statement because I believe from what we can read and study is that um, the very purpose for who we are um, and, and what we belong to and who we belong to and why we've been created and all these things is tied to that one statement. It all rests in that, all's rooted in that, all hinges upon God going, when he created us, saying, I'm going to create man different than anything else that God created. God said, I'm going to make them special. I'm going to make man different. I'm going to create him in my image and in my likeness. And so, um, so much of who we are as a person that often we um, wonder and question can be answered by knowing what it is to be made and created in God's image and God's likeness. So I would encourage you to come Wednesday and join us through uh, a topical teaching that we're going to be doing there. Now, we're in Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 1, and um, I get to my notes here, and we're going to get started. Um, I'm going to pray. If you guys will I'll bow your heads and we'll pray. Lord, Thank you, God, for the worship time this morning. Thank you for getting to be here with, with my friends, my family, your people. God, us who have been called uh, according to the name of Jesus Christ and, and, Lord, who have been saved by grace through faith. And, Lord, those of us who desire to, to worship you and to know you more, to have um, koinonia, intimate fellowship with you like we're having this morning, Lord. And so as we study your word today, and we start this new study through the book of Exodus. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts so that we may understand, so that we may know and understand, God, um, your will for our lives, um, the plan that you've, that you've uh, appointed and, 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 and destined us to, this plan of good and this plan of, of um, an eternal hope and eternal life with you. And how you've set us free, God, how you've redeemed us. Lord, help us to see and know all these things as we study um, what you did for your people, the children of Israel, and, and learn more about them. And Father, we, we, we want you to be here. We need you, Lord, to be the one who's teaching us by your Holy Spirit. And God, we believe that your word is truth, and we open up ourselves to hear and receive what you have this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, before we, we read and go into this, I, wanted to just, I just want to give you a brief introduction. The book of Exodus, as I already pointed out, and you can, as you've seen when you turn here, it's the second book of the Bible. 
and it picks up right where uh, the book of Genesis ends as it continues with this historical account of the Hebrew people and tells us of the um, bondage that the Israel or the Hebrew people had um, were, were in or came under while they were in Egypt. And, and then it goes on to describe this. It goes on to describe how God miraculously di- delivered them from that bondage that, that, they were, that they were brought under. Now, this word exodus is, is a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. Even though it's, this, this is a, a Hebrew book and it gives a Hebrew history, the word exodus is a, Hebrew, or is a, is a, is a Greek word, and it's a Greek word that simply means... Um, the way out. And one of the, the, the key words in, 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 uh, that's repeated throughout the, the, the book of Exodus is this word redemption. And I would encourage you in the weeks that, that follow and even, even today is, is you, you key in on, on that word when it's mentioned over and over to be redeemed or, the, or to, 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 to um, have, have that word redemption. And as you key in on it, keep in mind that it simply means to be set free, okay? And, and I want you to key into it because in light of this, we can see how the book of Exodus, it gives us many pictures of our own salvation and of the freedom that we have received through our faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the word Exodus... In that, in that Greek form, is used in the New Testament three different times. First, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse, verse 22, which, which, or excuse me, once in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 22, where, where, which, of course, that's, the, that's the, 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 the chapter in regards to the, the men of faith from the Old Testament. And when, it, when it refers to Joseph in verse 22, it, it says that Joseph spoke in faith, by telling of Israel's departure is the word that it uses there, but it's actually the Greek word exodus. By telling of Israel's exodus from Egypt, it says, even while he was dying. And if you remember from when we studied through that, Joseph was on his deathbed and, and he, 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 he prophesied, he foretold of God's promise to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt. And that was a promise that had been handed down to Jacob and Jacob had spoken to his son Joseph and Joseph had made that known to his descendants so that they would take his bones out when that time came, when that right time had come. And so Joseph, it says, spoke in faith of the exodus or the departure of Egypt while he was dying. But again, also the same word, this word, Greek word exodus is also used in Luke chapter 9, verse 31 by Jesus. And that word exodus is used again when Jesus spoke of his own upcoming death. He was speaking to his disciples and he was speaking about his own death. And, and he was also speaking about that time that the overall thought that he was presenting to his disciples was of the redeeming work that he would do or that would be done through his departure, through his exodus, and, and, and obviously through his work on the cross. Again, that's where that word is used to another time. And then it's used lastly in Second Peter chapter 1 verse 15. And this word exodus was used by the apostle Peter when he was referring to his, his physical body uh, as a tent, as a temporary dwelling place. And, and he did that because he was speaking about his departure from it as he was writing to the early church, as his exodus from this earthly body, from this temporary dwelling place. 
And when we connect these three New Testament dots, if you will, together, we see that there are really three Exodus experiences in the Bible. First, we have Israel's deliverance, which we're going to be reading about as we study through the book of Exodus. Israel's deliverance from Egypt, but we also have Jesus' deliverance of us, of sinners, through the work and death on the cross that Jesus did. And in addition to that, lastly, we see of the believer's deliverance or the believer's exodus from the bondage of this world at our own death when we physically leave these bodies behind. And, you know, and, and I point this out because all of these things, and, and this is what needs to be in the front of our mind as we're studying through the book of Exodus, is that all of these things remind us of this. It reminds us, guys, that God has a good plan for our lives. And he has a great and wonderful place waiting for us once we depart from this life and enter into the next. Now, the book of Exodus is one of five that are commonly referred to as the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word that simply means five volumes, Um, or as it's also referred to as the Torah, which is the Hebrew word that means the law. And when we get to the the last half of this book, when when the children of Israel delivered out of Egypt, we know that they go into the wilderness and they're they're at the mountain, right, Mount Sinai, and God comes to them and makes a covenant with them, and the law is given, and the the instructions for the tabernacle and all these things take place in this book as well. And so we, the, the, the Hebrew people um, have, have given these first five books, the total of it, um, this name, the Torah, which means the law, and we see that it begins here. And, and it's widely believed that um, with, without any really, without any really um, contention to it, but that they, it's, it's believed by all that Moses is the author of these five books of the Bible, these first five books of the Bible. And it, and it covers a period of time, as you know, when we started the book of Genesis, from the creation account on up to the death of Moses that occurred right or just before the conquest of the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And so in addition to being a book of history, which, which it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a book of history, the book of Exodus, that accounts Israel's deliverance from Egypt. This book, the book of Exodus, also presents to us basic historical facts about not only about the Hebrew nation, but also about many of its religious ceremonies and customs that unlock all kinds of things for us. And what we will see as we study through this book is that these accounts gives us that, they're, that, they're, that, that, that these accounts in the book of Exodus gives us spiritual pictures. Gives us many spiritual pictures of Jesus and the redemption that he purchased for us on the cross. And man, I'm going to point these things out as, as often as I can as we study through this. And in the last half of the book, like I said, which accounts the giving of the law and the plans for the construction of the tabernacle, what we'll see is that there's many There's much symbolism. There's many symbolic things of Jesus Christ and of those, us, who have put our faith in Jesus. And I think it's safe to say that it would be impossible to understand. Now, hear what I'm saying, because this is important. It would be impossible for, for, to understand much of the New Testament doctrine that our faith rests in the reasons for why we believe what we believe, it would be impossible to understand the New Testament doctrine that our faith rests in apart from the understanding 
of the events and symbols that are recorded in this book here. And this is why it's important, so important for us to have a knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament. I have heard pastors say that the Old Testament is no longer relevant for us today. That all we need to do is, is, is know and understand the, the New Testament. And man, if, that's, if, that, if you're missing so many reasons for why we have the things in the New Testament, our beliefs, our doctrinal beliefs that we, our faith rests in. And, and the more that you understand the Old Testament, it unlocks the New Testament for us. And, and we're going to see that as we continue to go through the, our study of the Old Testament. So I'm just going to give you a little example of this in, before we get started. And as we jumped into these first chapters, I want to point out eight things, if you're keeping notes, eight things from the book of Exodus, which we're going to study through, eight things that have symbolic importance in regards to spiritual understanding and, 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 and New Testament doctrine that applies to our lives today. For example, Egypt, when we look at this as a type or, or, or as a symbolic thing, Egypt is a type, and you've heard me say this before as we've been studying through the book of Genesis, but Egypt is a type or a picture of the world system that is still alive today, a world system that opposes God's people and tries to keep God's people, us, in bondage. And we see that as an example through the study of the book of Exodus. Likewise, Pharaoh, he's a type or a picture of Satan. Pharaoh is. Literally the quote-unquote the God of this world, right? We know that for a time, Satan has been given dominion over this world. He's the God of this world for a time. And like Pharaoh, we know that Satan, who is a type, or Pharaoh, who's a type of Satan, is that Satan and Pharaoh demanded worship. They defiled God or defies God. And, 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 and in the same way, both seek to enslave God's people, to, to bring God's people into bondage. On the other hand, Israel, third thing here, Israel gives us a picture of the church. Israel gives us a picture of, of the church, a people who have been delivered from the bondage of this world, led to a pilgrim journey, right? We're, we're sojourners that are just traveling and just passing through. And, and in, the, in the same manner, we are in that time, in that period, being protected by God, just like the children of Israel were. We say that, that there was a pillar of fire that guided them on their journey by night and a cloud that shrouded them by day. And we know that many other things that God did in that, in protecting them on their, their pilgrimage and their journey. And likewise, Israel gives us a picture of the church of us today. And then we have Moses. Moses is a type or a Wonderful picture of Jesus. And, and think about it like this, because Moses like Jesus, or Jesus like Moses, is a prophet, a priest, a servant, a shepherd, a mediator, and a deliverer. And furthermore, in addition to being like Jesus in all of these offices, Moses was also like Jesus in his character. The Bible tells us that Moses was meek. As a matter of fact, um, remember, Moses wrote these things, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we can, we can give Moses a little break on this. But Moses writes about himself, and he says that he was the meekest man who ever lived. It's a pretty bold claim. But nevertheless, it's a true, it's in the Scripture, and so he was a meek man. He was a faithful man. He was an obedient man. And like Jesus is what we see is that he was mighty in word and in deed. Mighty in word and in deed. Now, in addition to these things, we also see um, a picture or a type for us 
in regards to the Red Sea, in that the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, you know the story, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very popular Sunday school story where the Pharaoh's armies are chasing after the people who have finally been set free, and they come to the Red Sea, and, and they're freaking out, and, and God tells Moses to raise his staff and to put it into the sea, and the winds came and parted the sea, and the Israelites crossed over on dry land, right? And they got across, and, and, the, and then Pharaoh and his armies and the chariots came across, and the seas came down upon them, the waters came down upon them. Well, that, that whole picture, that crossing of the Red Sea, is a picture or a type of the resurrection, why? Because the resurrection is what delivers us from our enemy and from the evil that is in this world, just like it did for the Hebrew people. Cool spiritual pictures that we see that unlock all kinds of truths and understanding for us. For example, the manna, one other thing, the manna that God will feed in and did feed his people with as we study this, this scripture, it gives us a picture of Jesus who, according to John chapter 6, is what? Jesus is the bread of life. Right? And we're going to look at some cool um, uh, comparisons there when we get to that part of, of, of this study. And then there's this guy by the name of Amalek in this story in the book of Exodus. Amalek is, is a pagan king, a Gentile king, and, and he fought against the Hebrew people. And he, made their, uh, <clears throat> as, and he fought against the Hebrew people as they made their pilgrimage, as they wandered in the wilderness, as they sojourned. And, and Amalek is a picture of our flesh. Why? Because our flesh fights against us, does it not? It wars against us, the Bible says in the book of Galatians, as we journey through this life. And, and, and um, lastly, uh, the last one I want to point out, and there's more than these, but the last of the eight that I want to point out to you this morning is the Passover. And the Passover is a picture or a type that points us forward to the cross. Remember, the blood of the Lamb was painted down and across the doorposts. And it gives us amazing, this Passover gives us an amazing and graphic picture of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why God took that event that we read about here and instituted as one of the yearly sacrifices for the Hebrew people so that they would not forget, but also so they would look forward and be prepared for the Messiah, the coming of the Savior whose blood would be the one that would ultimately deliver and set God's people free. So with that all being laid out, let's jump into the, the study here. And if you'll follow along in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of those, verse 5, who were descendants of Jacob were 70. And, and back in, in, in the book of Genesis, we see that being confirmed. 70 persons, it says, for Joseph was already in Egypt. And verse 6, and Joseph died in his brothers in all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there, verse 8, arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, <clears throat> lest they multiply and it happen in the event of a war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up 
out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But, they, but the more they afflicted them, and, and really, guys, this is a really cool picture of the church, too, because you know what? We see in times when there's great persecution and great affliction upon God's church, what, what's the result of that? The church grows. And there's a purifying that takes place. And, and, and so, again, here's a really cool picture because the more they afflicted him, it says the more they multiplied and grew. And it's like, it's like God intervenes, right? And he says, no way, no way. The evil that comes against you cannot prevail against the good that I have for you. And these, these spiritual truths are things that apply into our own lives today. They're promises that you and I can take hold of because we all face those times where we feel like we're being attacked, that the world's coming against us, that we have these adversaries that war against us. And we can rest assured, no matter what evil comes against you, that it cannot prevail against the good that God has for you. And actually, in those times of adversity, in those hardships, in that, in that, in that when, when people are, are coming against you, that's when there's an increase. That's when there's a multiplying that takes place in your life. And, and, and we see that to be true in regards to the children of Israel. And it says the result of this in verse 12 is that they, the, the Hebrew people, or the, the, the Egyptians, they, they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. In other words, they were brought even more so into this role of slave. And they, were, and, and, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage um, and in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All of their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Zipporah and the other and the name of the other was, was Hua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives can come to them. Therefore God dealt well, verse 20, with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was, verse 21, because the midwives feared God, that's important, that he provided households for them. And literally what that means is sons, provided sons for them, for, for, their, for that, that household to continue on. So Pharaoh, verse 22, commanded all of his people saying, every son who is born, so the, this command now goes up to every Egyptian, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Well, there's a lot there, and I was really hoping when we started this, when I started this study, I was really hoping to be able to do two chapters at once, but that's not going to happen, so we'll just try to get through chapter one this morning. And, and, and as I was studying, and, and, and I read all kinds of really cool things, I, I have so much in here, I, just, I, I, I wish to be able to get it all out to you, and I'm only going to get just a portion of all the things that I read and studied, but I read somewhere that Jewish rabbis actually call the book of Exodus the book of names. 
It's very practical, right? The book of names. And this is because it opens up with the names of Jacob's sons, a list of them, a list of the descendants of Israel who had brought their families into Egypt. And we know that they did so from our study in the book of Genesis in order to escape a famine that had spread through Egypt and in, in, in extended even into the land of Canaan where Jacob and his, his family were residing. That was the promised land, the land that God had called Abraham to him and his descendants, the place where they had built altars and, and that God had promised to give to them. And we know that, 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 that they left because of the famine. And that event, if you want to read about it and you want to reflect back on it, was actually recorded in Genesis chapter 46. But at that time, we know that Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, through a set of circumstances that you're probably familiar with, he had already been living in Egypt. And he had been elevated to this position of second in charge over all of Egypt. And he had been put he had oversight over all of the stores of food, the food supplies that had been stored up previous to this famine. And we know that this had all been done because of the wisdom that Joseph had as a result of the knowledge that God had given to him and, and as a result of Joseph's faith and relationship with God. And, and so there's really cool things that were going on there as God kind of orchestrated and set all these things up. Consequently, what we read and, and what we continue to read of now is that Jacob... And, and all of his sons, these 70 who had come in, they were shown favor because of Joseph by Pharaoh, by the ruler of Egypt. And, and that favor had been given to Joseph's family and had extended and continued generation after generation long after Joseph had died, is what we read here. And his memory, Joseph's memory, was honored by the way that the Egyptians treated the Hebrew people. But this prosperity that the Hebrew people um, experienced during this time was the result ultimately of the covenant that God had made with his people through Abraham. The, the covenant that God had made with Abraham when he first promised him back in Genesis chapter 12 to bless Abraham's descendants and to multiply them greatly so that they would become a mighty nation, right? So mighty that they would be unable to be numbered. And compared them to the, to, the, to the stars in the sky and the sands that were upon the seas. And God had made this promise. And according to verse 5, we see again that the number of people in the, in the household of Jacob who first went into Egypt was a mere 70. And then, in, and then when we get to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, it's going to be in a couple weeks before we get there. But we're told that there were more than 600,000 men, specifically 600,000 men who were, of the, who were 20 years and older, fighting age. That was the ones that were um, usually censused and given an account to. And, and, and these were the number that were led out of Egypt when the time came, when the right time came. And, and that was just men who were of fighting age, 600,000. And, and I've shared this with you before because when you do the estimated math, involved in this and you take the women and children who were not added to this 600,000 who were counted, you know that the total number of Hebrew people who descended from this original family of 70 that went into Egypt, Jacob's family, could have been, should have been, would have been probably around 2 million people. An awesome thing that God had done. But this increase, this blessing we read here, that this multiplication that had taken place in the land of Egypt caused... Um, the Hebrew, or, 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 or it caused the new Pharaoh 
It says, specifically, the one who did not know Joseph after some time had forgotten. Um, And there's some other things that I don't want to get into this morning that kind of gives an explanation for maybe who this guy was. And and if if you're interested in that, you can kind of go and research the 18th dynasty of the Egyptian reign. That's all I'm going to give you for for a little bit of uh, insight into that. And you can go and look that up on your own to try to figure out maybe why Joseph was forgotten or, or, or what was taking place at this time. But anyway, he was afraid, is what we're told. And, and because of the fear that he had, he was going to set some things in place to try to control their growth, to, to, to maintain the Egyptian people. And um, when God had made his covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, specifically in verses 12 through 14, he told Abraham that his descendants, he said, your descendants are going to go into a strange country. He said, this is the land that I'm giving you, but there's a time when your descendants will go into a strange country. And, he, and, and, and God even told uh, Abraham at the time that they would be afflicted and that they would be enslaved. But at the same time, God also promised, he also told Abraham that he would set them free by his power at the right time. And so all of this really reveals to us that God had a plan from the very beginning. God had a plan for the very beginning. And in light of this, we should see that these afflictions, which God foretold of and even allowed, right, was the means by which God worked in the hearts of the Hebrew people in order to move them back to the place where they really would want to be delivered. In fact, in Psalms 105, which is really a historical psalm, it's a song that gives an account of the works of God. In verses 24 through 25, it speaks about this specific thing. It speaks of God's control over these things that we're reading about here. And it's so important because often we look at things that through our eyes and through our understanding, which is limited, right? And we go, well, that's a bad thing. Why would God allow that thing? Or we somehow think that that's out of God's control because it's affecting our lives in a way that seems negative to us. But when we look at it maybe from God's perspective, in hindsight is is how we're able to do that. Usually looking back on it, we see God's purposes and God's plan in all of that. And then there was a theme that we went through over and over and over again in regards to Joseph, right? Who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, who who was betrayed and forgotten, all these things. It was all part of God's plan to bring forth good. And we see that here occurring once again. And, in, 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 and that's confirmed for us in Psalm 105. It says this. It says, God increased his people greatly, speaking of this time, and he made it stronger than his enemies. And he turned their heart to hate his people, speaking of the Egyptians. God turned the Egyptians' heart at this time, at the right time, to hate his people and to deal craftily with his servants. And God did this because the Hebrew people at this time and up to this time had experienced much increase. Where? In the land of Egypt. And they were living comfortably in, here's the key, in this strange country. They were living comfortably in this strange land. And they, we can reason from that that they probably had no intentions of leaving it all behind, Right? to go and dwell in, the, in, in, in a land where there was enemies. We know that when they get to the border for the first time, that Joshua will send spies into the land, and the, and the spies come back, and they're like, we ain't going in there. There's giants in that land. 
And, and many times throughout their, their, their wilderness journeys, they complain against Moses. They're like, oh, we, I wish we could just go back to Egypt. Even after the bondage, why is there, they remember how they, one of the times it says that they were able to sit down with pots of meat where they had leeks and onions. And, and even their longing for what was, forgetting how bad it had gotten at that time because of the difficulties that they had as they journeyed and where God was taking them to, which is ultimately a good thing, we see that they had really no intentions of leaving. They were quite comfortable where they were at. But we've got to remember, Egypt, guys, Egypt was not the land that God had given to them as an inheritance, was it? It was not the promised land. And now, as we read through and study this, we see that the right time had come for Israel to leave Egypt. I don't know why it was the right time, but it was. And it was God was preparing things for them to go and where they would go and what they would do. God had prepared that over this time. We're told that they were in, they were in Israel for four generations. 400 years is what it says, is what we know. And God was doing a work through all of that, during all that time, not only with his people who were in Egypt, but in preparing the land for them. And one of the things that we do know is that God said, you're going to go into the land and you're going to take possessions of things that you didn't even have to work for, crops and, and cities and all that's going to be given to you. And that was part of the preparation. It was the right time for Israel to leave Egypt and to go dwell in the land that, had given, that God had given to them. And, and as we look at how this applies to us, what we need to see is, is the fact of the matter is, is that we can and we do, as believers, as the children of God, we dwell in places that God has never intended us for dwell, to dwell in. We dwell in places that God has never intended for us to dwell in. Strange places with strange things that we have become comfortable with Comfortable living in and living with. Yet these places and these things that are always, always connected to this temporary life and this world that is against God. Guys, this is not what God's called us to. I don't know what that is in your life. It's different for each of us, but guaranteed there's, there's these same things. And the fact of the matter is, is that God will. I, I originally put down here as I was thinking about that God might there's no might about it. God will. God will allow for hard things to flow into our lives in order to work in our hearts so that we might be willing to relocate, whatever that looks like, so that we might be willing to cry out to God to be delivered from the bondage that we're in. And sometimes we don't even realize that we're in bondage until God does things like this. And we realize that we're, we're blind to it. We realize that we've been enslaved by these things. Things that even have been a blessing to us. I'm enslaved to mowing my lawn. If anybody wants to take care of that for me. You know, having a house <laughs> and having a lawn and all those things is truly a blessing. But sometimes the blessings of God can turn into a burden because we can become enslaved by them. And we need to look at our lives and go, is this really what God has for me? And then be willing to be moved when God makes them, when God reveals that this is not the place, that this isn't the promised land. Now, as we continue on and we pick up back in verse 8, we kind of made it through the first seven verses. It says there in verse 8 that there arose this new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this guy, this guy had some issues, to say the least, right? 
And even though the Hebrew people, even though the thing that's, that's very strange and, and, and it kind of oh, should open our eyes to, to think about it and go a little bit further is, is, is this guy was reacting out of fear and he had no really good reasons for it because we know as God blessed the Hebrew people, we're told over and over again that they were a blessing to the Egyptians. That the, the prosperity that they experienced flowed over to the Egyptian people. That the, that the, that the Hebrew people had been a blessing to the Egyptians. And, 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 and they, they obviously weren't causing any trouble. There's no reference to them being a problem. And, and this new pharaoh who did not know Joseph, what he ultimately came to the conclusion is that they were a security risk. They were a risk to their national security. So in an attempt to control their growth and to contain their prosperity, which had been given down to them from God, Pharaoh, we're told, first set up these taskmasters. Taskmasters over them who would afflict them with their burdens. And that, that's interesting when it says their burdens because what we really see is in it they were being forced now to do the hard labor that the Egyptians probably didn't want to do. And according to verse 11, it first consisted of building two supply cities for Pharaoh. But this did not bring the intended result. He figured if I just worked them to death, they would not have the opportunity to go and procreate, that they would just be too tired, I guess. Um, if that was the, 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 the thought behind that. But they were forced to do this, and, and it didn't bring the intended result that Pharaoh was looking for. As verse 12 tells us clearly that the more the Hebrew people were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. Consequently, they were treated even worse by Pharaoh and by the Egyptians who sought to make their lives, it says, bitter with harder bondage. And Pharaoh even took things to a whole nother level when he commanded the Hebrew midwives, the Hebrew midwives in verse 16, to kill every male child that was born. You know, and if this plan, if you think about it, if this plan had succeeded, Pharaoh would have been able to wipe out the Hebrew people. It was a plan for extermination. Considering the future generation of men would all be dead and then the Hebrew girls who were allowed to remain alive would eventually be married to the Egyptians and then consequently absorbed into the Egyptian race. But what we know is that God would never permit this. It was not part of his plan. It was not in conjunction with any of the promises that God had made to his people and that God still honors to his people today. And the fact, listen to this, and the fact that the attempt to exterminate the Hebrew people is, is really only the first or one of many that God has delivered his, his people from. What it does and what we should see is that it reveals to us how Satan hates God and, and, and how Satan hates God's people and that ultimately Satan who hates God and Satan who hates God's people was really the one behind this evil command that Pharaoh had now made. Remember, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, which records the temptation of man, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the fall of man, and the curse that came after that, that was proclaimed. We're told that from the very beginning, Satan has been trying to destroy God's people and destroy God's plan of redemption. In addition to Pharaoh, we know this to be true because Satan used other men like Haman in the Bible, 
and other men outside of the Bible from historic accounts that we have, like men like Stalin and Hitler in his attempt to do this to exterminate God's people. Yet with every satanic attempt to destroy God's people and to do away with God's plans, God has kept his promises. He's kept his promise, his faithfulness to protect and to sustain his people. And here we see that God used these midwives. God used these midwives, we're told, who feared him to protect these baby boys who had not been given a death sentence. Or who had been given a death sentence, excuse me. And in their refusal to obey, it's interesting because in their refusal to obey an evil law because of a higher good, what we have is our first scriptural um, um, reference or our first scriptural instance of civil disobedience. And I know some of you guys out there really like that. You're like, yeah, go midwives. And even though there are many scriptures like Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, that instruct us to obey human authorities, our human authorities, there are other passages of scripture, right? Like Romans chapter 13, verse 5, and then an example given in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, which reminds us these two things, that our obedience may never violate, our, our obedience to man may, must never violate first our conscience, which means, which simply means with knowledge, our understanding with knowledge, with the knowledge of, of God's law and who God is, or the laws of God. Our obedience to mankind must never violate our conscience or our laws of God. And when the laws of man are contrary to the laws of God, we ought to obey, the Bible says. We ought to obey God rather than man. And this example is, is not only seen with these midwives who refused to obey Pharaoh's commands, it's also exampled up the Bible through with godly men. We're doing a study with the men's group on Thursdays with a guy by the name of Daniel, right? And we know from the very beginning that Daniel, he, he was a godly man that disobeyed the king because he refused to bow down and worship the golden image that had been set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. But we also given this example in the book of Acts by the apostles Peter and John who, who continued to speak and teach, we're told, the name of Jesus even after the Jewish leaders had forbidden it. They commanded them to stop. And threaten their lives and imprisonment if they didn't. And this is when they said, it's better for us to obey God than to, to obey man. In all of these examples, guys, I bring this up because all of these examples should remind us of our need. It is a need we have. It should remind us of our need to stand up for what God says is right, but also to stand against what God says is wrong. And the truth is, the church is failing. We're failing at this. We're failing at this. Because we see the consequences. And, this, and this, these Hebrew midwives saw the consequences too. And, and the Apostle Peter and, and, and John saw the consequences too. But yet they felt that it was best. They knew that it was best to first obey God rather than to obey man. And we must, we have this need to stand up for what God says is right and to stand against what God says is wrong because we're living in a time, in these last days, the Bible says, a time when, and tell me if I'm wrong, prove me I'm wrong, but I'm not. Tell me, because we're living in a time when, when, when people, when the world is calling 
evil good and good evil. We're living in this time when people are calling good evil and evil good, and as a result, there are many things which are contrary to the laws of God that are not only being permitted, but they're even being commanded by today's ungodly leaders. And if we who know the truth, if we who have conscience, knowledge, and an understanding with knowledge are unwilling to stand up for what is right and to stand up and to stand against what is wrong, who else will? And in order to, guys, in order to navigate through these things, we need to have this understanding of God's Word, a knowledge and understanding of God's Word. But more importantly, I think, or in addition to that, in conjunction with that, because sometimes when we're in those places, there's a gray line. There is. Not in every instance. Lots of things are very black and white, but sometimes there's a gray area there. And there's even an answer for that, because we need to have a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit who promises to help us, right? Our helper, our guide promises to help us and guide us as we navigate the right path. Because we're also called to do this with a heart of love, with a spirit of love. And when it's apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit, it's just, it's just judgmental and critical and condemning. And it's not the way that God calls us to live our lives when we stand up for what is right and stand against what is wrong. It's to be with the spirit of love and compassion and extending grace and mercy and drawing people and leading people out of the darkness and into the light and into the truth. Now, as we consider how these Hebrew midwives who feared God, when we consider how these Hebrew midwives who feared God refused to do what Pharaoh commanded, we cannot overlook the fact that it appears, there's room here for, for a little bit either way, but it appears if, if they did not tell the truth. When Pharaoh asked when they had refused to do what they had commanded. And I point this out because... When we read in verse 20 that God had dealt well with these midwives, we could possibly can wonder if God somehow approved of their deception, of their dishonesty, right? In fact, I've heard people and, and pastors and other Bible teachers use passages like this to say that there are times when dishonesty is deception is okay if it brings about a greater good. I don't agree with that. I don't think this is what the Bible teaches us. And I disagree with this, and not only because God's Law condemns lying, bearing false witness, deception, but also because we never read in this account, we're never told that God gave his approval to the excuses that the midwives gave to Pharaoh. It's just documented. It's just accounted. It's just an historical fact. Rather, what we see is that God's blessing of them, according to verse 21, and that's why I said this is important and significant, that God's blessing or God's Approval of them was for fearing him and for refusing to do the ungodly things that the king of Egypt had commanded them, even when they knew that there was a potential consequence for doing it. And this is a good reminder for us because when we stand up for what is right and when we stand against what is wrong, it's very likely what's going to come in a day that we live in with some retaliation, is it not? If you stand up, and if you, have, if you do social media, you've probably experienced this. And I would encourage you to be braver and, and go beyond the, 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 the realm of just doing that in your social media life. But who here has stood up for what is right and stand against what is wrong in social media and been retaliated against? It's really easy to do, but it's going to happen. 
And, and, and you're going to be retaliated against from those who hate God and those who hate what is right. Nevertheless, doing things God's way is always the best way. Always. Doing things God's way is always the best way, even if things don't work out in our favor on this side of eternity. Because lots of times you're going to do what is right and stand up against what is wrong, and it's not going to go well with you this side of eternity. It's not. But we can trust that the eternal rewards that we will receive will far outweigh, the Bible teaches us, any of the sufferings that we might have to endure in this life for doing what is right. The question is, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to do it? There's plenty of opportunity every day for us to stand up for what is right and to stand against what is wrong. Now, even though Pharaoh's plan to kill, we're going to end with this, so the worship team wants to come back up. <clears throat> this is real simple. We're just going to kind of close probably really abruptly, but because chapter 2 is such a, an, an immediate continuation of what we're reading here. But even though Pharaoh's plan to kill all the newborn sons had failed, we see that Pharaoh didn't relent right? He wasn't going to give up that easily. And in verse 22, it says that he commanded all of his people and moved from the midwives to this decree for all the Egyptians, all the Egyptian people across the land, that they were now to join in in this campaign of, of, of killing the Hebrews' newborn sons by casting them into the Nile River. What a, what a threatening environment. What a fearful place to be living at this time if you were the Hebrew people. That if you were to have a child, if you were to have a son, and if they were to find out that, 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 the, that the, the people that you dwelt with were going to take them and drown your son. And apparently we, we know, we can conclude or deduct that this was actually taking place, that there were, that there were Egyptians who were doing this, because <clears throat> when we read on in chapter 2, we see that there was a Hebrew woman who did all that she could do to hide her son and save his life. And of course, this was the son, this, this son who we're going to read about in chapter 2 was Moses. The hero of the story, right? The not-so-hero hero. <laughs> but the one who God would use to deliver his people. We're going to end with that. I just want to leave you with this last thought because I mentioned it. You know, the Bible is full of what we might refer to as anti-heroes. Men and women that God used in spite of their failures, in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their sin. And from the very beginning, we see that Moses was a messed up guy. <laughs> but even as we look at the Hebrew women and these midwives and what they did, and how God is going to take this, this little baby who was saved by his mother, and, and God orchestrating and, and working all these things out. We're going to see that God, as we read in the book of Corinthians, uses the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise, to do his work, to bring forth his will. And guys, the things that I've been talking about this morning is really a call to action on our part. And lots of times when we're called into action or, or called to go forth and apply God's word to our life, we often look at ourselves and we go, God, I can't do that. I'm not equipped. And we look at our failures, our shortcomings, our faults, and we go, man, God, you could better use someone than me. And matter of fact, when Moses is called some 40 years from this place, there at the burning bush, he, he, he reasons with God and he goes, man, I can't even talk, God, how are you going to use me? 
And he focuses in on himself rather than focusing in on what God can do and who God is. And that's what we need to do this morning, guys. I would encourage you to, to as you make this call, as you answer this call of action in your own life, to maybe move from the places that God's calling you to move from or to stand up for what is right and against what is wrong, that you would not look at your faults and failures, your shortcomings, but you would look at the greatness of God and the power of God that will fill you and equip you to be able to do what he's called you to do. What God is asking for this morning from us is just our willingness. And are we willing? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We give you thanks. We want to surrender our lives again to you this morning. We don't want to answer this call, God, these things that you've convicted us, the things that you've opened our eyes and our hearts to. Lord, as we even sang this morning, we give you our heart. And we ask, God, that you would take it and use it for your glory, that we would be surrendered to you as we journey through this life that people would see you as a result of our love for you and as a result of our obedience. I pray, God, for each one of us that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in power and in might, and you would strengthen us, God, that you would give us that dunamis, a boldness, a courage, Lord, to do what is right and to stand against what is wrong, that we would no longer live comfortably in places that we've just maybe compromised or um, places where... Um, God, you've called us to leave behind a long time ago because we're fearful to go forward to the place that you called us to. And I pray, God, that in that you would help us to see that you always have something better for us, that you're a God of good who has good. So, Lord, may we trust you and may we live by faith, once again, dedicating our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.